welcome to Planet Sleep. I'm your host, Josh, and in tonight's episode, we're going to be traversing the dry, vast, yet beautiful Sahara Desert, one of the most ancient landscapes on the planet. Who knows what secrets we may uncover. Before we go, I want to remind you that Planet Sleep is brought to you by Higher Love Wellness. Higher Love Wellness is a CBD and wellness brand owned by myself. If you're looking for something to take the edge off after a long and stressful day, or maybe you need some help getting better sleep at night, Higher Love CBD can help you in both of those areas. We only make the highest quality hemp extracted CBD products on the market. All of our products feature broad spectrum CBD with no THC and all of them are made right here in Colorado. From seed to sale, you'll feel comfortable taking Higher Love CBD. If you're interested in checking out Higher Love Wellness, visit higherlovewellness.com. Listeners of Planet Sleep can save 10% off with code SLEEP at checkout. We ship to all 50 U.S. states, and you must be 18 or older to purchase. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for what lies and waits for us in the Sahara Desert. Merciless, dry, and vast. Its mysteries remain hidden within layers of sand and rock. The Sahara Desert spreads across the continent for an astounding 3.6 million square miles, covering 8% of the total land on Earth. It makes it the largest hot desert on the planet. Endless sands roll from one horizon to the next, and the sandstone plateaus carved by ancient winds give variety against the infinite waves of desert dunes. Desolate and harsh, only the most specialized of wildlife can survive. Where water runs deep under the sand, Few trees can endure the hot sun. An average temperature of 100 degrees controls the land, with 136 degrees at its hottest. (laughs) 
less green than yellow fills the desert. And with no vegetation holding the ground in place, heavy winds continue to change the visible landscape by the day. The shift of a dune appears as one wave in an ocean made of sand, slowly moving across the desert over the course of a lifetime. Here in the Sahara, nothing is permanent, not the sand beneath you, nor the groundwater below. Over 4,000 years ago, these barren tracts of land were once filled with rich greenery. Yet by the smallest change in harmony within the cosmos, Savannah became Sahara. The gradual tilt of the Earth's axis over the millennia, less than a mere degree in its change of axis transformed what was once a rich, greening savanna into the arid desert of today. This shift in the planet's tilt has left northern Africa as one of the least habitable places on the earth. What had once been nurturing fields of immigrating ranchers are now the barren lands from which they fled. Few remained, while many retreated to the last remaining waters of northern Africa. The Niger River, the Chad Lake, and the Northern Nile. Farming and irrigation flourished in ancient Egypt. An empire rose as the forests of northern Africa disappeared. Pyramids erected of carved limestone reached into the arid sky as man fled from the now sterile lands. Much of the desert's water evaporated and moved south, leaving behind nothing but sand, rock, and desolation. You stand on the precipice of a dune. With the sun in the evening sky, the shadow of each dune leaves its darkest side the color of charcoal, and the other side a bright yellow. For as far as you can see, there is nothing but the arid winds slowly changing the shapes of each dune, one day at a time. A bit of sand whips up from the highest peak of the dune. Another handful rolls down inside. Although the lands of Sahara remain for the most part desolate, their ever-shifting sands offer a chance of life within the interconnected survival of the planet. As most ecosystems operate under the delicate line of harmony and balance within an endless series of complex relationships, the sands of the Sahara 
contribute towards life elsewhere, across the ocean. In the midst of a dry spell, the severe winds of the Sahara, unobstructed by the open tracts of low-density sediment, pick up the lightest, finest bits of sand. Not only will they sweep from one dune to the next, or one acre to the next, or one country to the next, these winds will carry sand and sediment across continents, across the vast Atlantic Ocean. One grain of sand can travel from the dried lake beds of Chad all the way to the muddy banks of the Amazon River in South America. Within the sand of the Sahara lies the stories of its past, where in a massive depression of fine sand, there had once been the largest freshwater lake on the planet. Thousands of years before, once the host of the great lake in the heart of Chad, there rests Baudelaire depression. As the lowest point in the country, this reservoir of sand and sediment is picked up by the near-surface winds and scattered across the world. This single basin contributes the most atmospheric dust on the entire planet, and its transporting winds are some of its greatest contributors to the fertile soil and the otherwise lacking Amazon rainforest. Although at first glance, the biting winds of dry air, the infertile ground, the astounding heat of the Sahara might seem like nothing more than a wasteland. Its contribution is crucial to places like the Amazon rainforest, the most biodiverse region on the planet. Yet not all of the Sahara acts as one giant sandbox of sediment and dust. The trace of memory from its greener years reveals itself within small, paleo lakes scattered across the dunes. These are remnants of much larger lakes that used to exist here. Yet as the grassland shifted to desert, not many remain. In the crevice between sand, a small outcropping of trees and shrubs borders a small oasis, a slit of water hidden away, a pocket of nourishment rarely seen within the Sahara. Small bristles of vegetation collide, and the quiet hum of insects crosses the water. Here, finally a place of refuge for traveling wildlife. High in the sky, a small African swallow darts above each sand dune in search of an oasis such as this. Hungry and thirsty, this swallow has migrated for thousands of miles 
from the northern reaches of Europe in hopes to find a more suitable climate towards southwest Africa. But first this bird must take his journey across the desolate dunes of the Sahara. The Uberi Sand Sea, a seemingly barren region in western Libya, harbors towering mounds of sand as far as the eye can see, one dune and another and another like waves of an ocean. To the desperate eye, there is nothing here among the sand, yet for the overhead eye of the swallow, it has a chance to discover the rare sanctuaries along its journey. Traveling at roughly 500 miles per day, the swallow has a gambling chance of coming across at least one of these paleo lakes, a precious needle in a desolate haystack. Roughly 20 of these oases, ornate with the palm trees that border their blue waters, exist within the Uberi Sand Sea. Some are so calm and reflective, they mirror the image of dunes surrounding them. As rare as they are, they look like mistakes made by Mother Nature, as if something so nourishing was accidentally dropped into the middle of the desert, the residuals of a more plentiful era. Yet buyer beware, these havens of food and water may not be what they seem. The swallow spots the glint of water from several miles away, a mirage perhaps, but he investigates anyway since his chances of finding nourishment within the Sahara are slim. On closer inspection, it is in fact an oasis of trees, insects, and water. Even a few of his friends have already discovered it. They sing from the shores and fly across its waters. As he watches his friends circle the water, flying up, down, and around the small pool, he notices none of them drink from it. They rest on the palm trees, and they catch insects with their beaks. They chirp to one another, yet none of them dare drink from the water. Those that do will never leave. For them, it is poisonous. These paleo lakes after thousands of years of intense evaporation have become saltier than the ocean itself. These lakes contain more saline solution than drinking water, brimming with concentrated salt and minerals. And if our swallow were to drink from these waters, he wouldn't survive the rest of his long migration. Only the most tolerable of plants and insects survive from these briny waters. However, not all hope is lost for the swallow, as a bit of luck would have it. Droves of flies have congregated above the salty water, frantically buzzing above its shallow surf, colliding into one another. They have no fear of drinking the water, since their bodies have the ability to filter the harsh concentration 
of salt and minerals. Within their tiny bodies, they carry a smidge of clean water. So by a simple dodge around the poisonous water, the swallow simply feeds on the harmless fly. And in one meal, he has not only eaten for the day, but also rehydrated himself in the process, killing two flies with one beak. As he takes his leave, he looks back at the oasis, a dollop of greenery among the beige sands, an accident among the barren land. The palms turn with the rise in the surface wind. An array of colorful birds sprinkle the brackish waters. These colors remind him of where he first left and of where his journey will take him. A glimpse of his past and present, but for now, he must endure the endless waves of the Uberi Sand Sea for a bit longer. Within a day's travel west from the Sand Sea, inside the borders of Algeria, a higher concentration of water rests in the region of the Tassili Najer National Park. Its name translates from the Berber language to Plateau of Rivers. From a bird's eye view, the surface of this region is reminiscent of the rocky lunar surface of the moon. Rigid, dry, and punctured by the passing of time, geological formations of rock forests fill the entire land. Its eroded layers of sandstone shine brightly beneath the blazing Saharan sun. Yet unlike the lunar surface, much of the sandstone is stained by a thin layer of metal oxides. Its colors range from a palette of near black to dark red and remain natural off-white where oxides have yet to stain, giving this region more the look of an alien planet than our nearby moon. Because of the higher elevation of these plateaus, this land typically sees more rainfall than elsewhere in the Sahara. And more rainfall, of course, means the potential for a wider array of plants and wildlife is much greater here than elsewhere across the desert. Known as Zarek Woodlands, these refuges of plants and animals are sparsely found throughout the Sahara. Much of the plant life found here was once flourishing in abundance many years ago but now only exists within these small regions. Cypress and myrtle trees survive at the bottom of valleys where streams may run, and even a rare olive tree can be found across the woodlands. Meandering along the tree lines, 
a hooved animal makes her way through the rocky terrain. Each step, a clop across the rocks beneath her. She stops every several yards to munch on the dry tufts of grass, and as she turns her head to look across the valley, her big horn on the side of her head bumps into the trunk of a cypress tree. The Barbary sheep, a caprid, which appears more familiar to a goat than the white woolly sheep of our imaginations. She sports large, inward-turning horns, thin brown hair on her back, and a long mane beneath her throat. Her calm presence is majestic compared to that of a pink-nosed sheep, typically kept as livestock, baaing in the fields. And among the Zarek woodlands of Africa, she is a rare sight to behold. The Barbary sheep is now common in other parts of the world, including Texas and Spain, after they were introduced to other regions in the mid-1900s, yet many still reside in their native homelands, gently roaming along the plateaus. For thousands of years, they have grazed the Zarek woodlands, as depicted by the prehistoric artwork found on the rocks of the Tassili Najar. When hunters and gatherers once roamed the lands, they depicted their hunting excursions on the sides of rocks. They etched their scenes and stories from their life in the woodlands some 12,000 years ago, often illustrating their lives in the days when the Sahara had once been a savanna rather than a desert. Lush countrysides sustained the grazing sheep. Trees and grass swept the land in a time when fruitful terrain was not exclusive to the plateaus of rainwater, when water wasn't kept secret to the hidden valleys of the highlands. Their artwork consists of engravings, paintings, and even artwork made of fungus. And as many as 15,000 drawings have survived the millennia, Many exist in areas believed to be sites of rituals and ceremonies. These depictions piece together a brief fractured history of the various people who lived among this region. From the days of hunters and gatherers to the more pastoral period, when domesticated cattle were first introduced to the Sahara. Horses began appearing in some of the artwork, and as they became the common mode of transportation, once the Sahara became a desert, and eventually the camel took responsibility from the horse, depicting a time in history when long trade routes across the desert became common, transporting salt goods and slaves. Shields, spears, and swords also found their way into the artwork as technology advanced. And the generations of people spanning across all these eras over thousands of years displayed their history on the rock walls of the Tassili Najar, still visible to this day. Within the etchings of this prehistoric artwork, there's no surprise one of the oldest animal species on earth found its way 
onto the rock canvases. Illustrated with large jaws, dozens of teeth, and black, soulless eyes. Even when the massive asteroids struck the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago, when fire and ash spread across the skies and killed the dinosaurs, within the haven of water, the crocodiles withstood the extinction event. Millions of years later, the western African crocodile would slowly walk its way around the Sahara, when it was once a luscious savanna, and catch prey by the waterways, feeding and crawling along as if nothing happened. And even when the Earth's axis shifted and the savanna became the desolate Sahara we know today, again, the West African crocodile acted as if nothing changed. The world continued to alter around them, and they came out unscathed, as if life goes on regardless. They eventually made their way to the highlands, one of the few places they could find water within the desert. Here, they mostly reside within caves or burrows within the rocky woodlands, and when water is scarce, they can survive in a state. Estivation, a state very similar to hibernation. This protects them from the high temperatures and desiccation of the desert, both common occurrences within the Sahara. They will wait in the state of estivation until the highlands bring rain. At the side of a crumbling rock face, where stones of red and white have fallen about, there lies a lonely croc, splayed under the dark shadows of a small ridge. She appears frozen, as still as the rocks around her, as dry and as lifeless. Not even her own breathing swells her chest. She waits beneath this rock for days in hopes of a rain cloud passing over the woodlands. She conserves what energy she has left for more fortunate days ahead. Beneath the ridge she stays cool, yet her green scutes have dried and her hunger pangs at her stomach. She hangs near what the locals call Wadi an Arabic term referring to a valley where rainwater collects within the woodlands. Against the crocodile's wishes, dry and empty, the wadi rests. Former pathways of streams can be seen from the braided trails of sediment left behind by the journey of rainwater, long gone now. These trails shift across the valley, causing new paths to form and old ones to dry. Since the amount of water traveling through the area is too inconsistent to carve a more permanent pathway. Caked on layers of sediment build across the valley from the bygone water and the wind from a nearby alluvial fan.
In the dry weeks of the plateau, the crocodile watches the wadi. These caked on layers of sediment, these braided curling streamlines, the nearby tree line, a distant cloud forming at the edge of a plateau, all stand as a testament to water or the hope of it. The evidence remains in what is left behind, and if nature dictates, the rain will surely come again. She must bear her children, and she must carefully help them from their eggs one day. Despite her strong, terrifying mouth with the power to break bones, one day she dreams of gently guiding her young from the egg with the tip of her lips in the waters of a future downpour. She will survive through extinction events, through the savanna turning to desert, and surely the water will flow again. This is what the croc thinks, and if not, if all mercy within the plateau evaporates alongside the water, the croc will do what it does best, survive. Even if that means somewhere else, perhaps the Nile, the far edge of the Sahara. From the old kingdom of Egypt, this crocodile was associated with their god Sobek. There reads an ancient pyramid text. Yunus is Sobek, green of plumage, with alert face, and raised four. The splashing one who came from the thigh and tail of the great goddess in the sunlight. With the body of a man and the head of a crocodile, Sobek stands strong as an ancient Egyptian deity. Associated with his power, fertility, and military prowess, Sobek coincided with the pharaoh himself. A leader, a god, and what better animal to represent a god than the West African crocodile? Often confused with the Nile crocodile, the West African crocodile was seen by the ancient Egyptians as more docile than its relative. Since it was typically less aggressive and smaller, the Egyptians were able to approach the crocodile, understand it, respect it. They were much easier to catch and tame, and some were kept as pets. Although the Egyptians sometimes hunted the West African crocodile, they had built an affinity towards the animal over the years, as seen by their ancient texts, which shows respect for Sobek, comparing the crocodile to the pharaoh, their leader. The main place of worship for this crocodile rested in the Fayum oasis in Middle Egypt, known as Crocodilopolis by the Greeks and various artworks, buildings, and sculptures of Sobek have been found throughout this region. In Sobek's temple, a West African crocodile was kept in its pool. This is where it lived and ate. It swam about the water as it would anywhere else. And even though zoos wouldn't exist for quite some time, this was the closest thing to a live animal exhibit in ancient Egypt. 
the worshippers would come to visit the crocodile, and they would cast their jewelry into the pool and say their prayers of worship. In general, the crocodiles became as docile and domesticated as good as any big-toothed carnivorous reptile could. Whenever the crocodile in captivity perished, the worshippers would embalm the carcass, mummify it, and place it into a sarcophagus and bury it within a sacred tomb, just like their pharaohs. Many of these crocodiles, along with their eggs, have been found in these ancient Egyptian tombs throughout the years and go to show just how much love and respect the ancient Egyptians had for the West African crocodile. Today, having a crocodile within a place of worship might seem a bit off-kilter. Behavior that's more expected from the Hollywood types who have more money than they know what to do with. Yet one animal, in particular, has made its way through our doors as an animal that we and the people of the East Sahara have in common. They're small, fluffy, clean, and love knocking things from the tops of tables. They purr with subtle warmth and the relationships they form with humans are sometimes as cryptic and enigmatic as their personalities. I'm talking, of course, about a cat. The silly, little, often supine ball of fur that comforts us after a long day. Turns out, the people of the Nile saw the great potential of these animals as early as 3100 BCE. And similar to the West African crocodile, the mummified carcasses of cats have been found throughout the ancient burial tombs of Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of them have been found throughout the years. These animals were so venerated by the ancient Egyptians, in fact, that the first great battle between the Persian Empire and Egypt in 525 BCE, the Persians were ordered by their king to place dozens of cats at their front lines. The Egyptians, in fear of injuring the animals they so loved, withheld any form of violence at the front lines. And with this strategy, the Persians easily conquered the city of Pelusium. In the eyes of the Egyptians, the simple cat, with its little bean toes, its whimsy, and its disposition to laziness, became more than a friend. Cats were nothing short of divine. They were praised for their ability to kill venomous snakes and protect their pharaohs. They were brought into households and buried beside family members. They were ancient gods incarnated, protectors, warriors, idols, depicted time and time again in ancient murals, hieroglyphs, and sculptures. Yet even before the Egyptians built the pyramids, even before the kingdom of Kemet came to be, 
the domestication of cats began thousands of years before. The first evidence of cat domestication comes from the country of Cyprus, just northeast of Egypt, dating somewhere between 7500 and 7200 BCE. The African wildcat was first attracted to human settlements due to their outpouring of rodents, such as mice, which the African cat loves to hunt. A tale as old as time, the predecessor to Tom and Jerry, and soon enough these cats were brought into the homes of early farmers as a good way to ward off rodents. As the process of farming spread, and the irrigation of the Nile opened up a plethora of farms across the eastern Sahara, the cats decided to tag along as well. For why not? The eating was good, and the humans were tolerable enough. And before long, the wildcats of Egypt slowly contributed to the maternal gene pool of what we know today as a warm little fuzzball that sits on our lap while we watch endless hours of the office on repeat. From Cyprus to Egypt, across the Mediterranean Sea, as the domesticated cat had once made its way, as irrigation found its place among the Nile, like much of the continuous change and movement throughout the Sahara, water is an essential element in all change. Water is the wheel that determines which direction Mother Nature will go. From the rolling waters of Niger, from the freshwater Chad Lake, to the persisting waters of the Nile, which have sustained life for thousands of years, water in all of its scarcity, as it hides in the underwater reservoirs beneath the desert, or gently caps the frigid tops of the Tibesti Mountains, its gradual migration across the Sahara dictates the course of life. At the bank of the slow-moving Nile, your feet sink gently into the mud and sand beneath you, finally ground into a soft velvet beach. The passive waters have carried the sediment from north to south through the eastern edge of the Sahara where this river has allowed life to keep living. Brackish, smelling of minerals and algae, the river is in no hurry to reach the Mediterranean Sea. Its movement along its soft, curling pathway remains relaxed, patient, and giving. As you stand still at the edge of the water, your feet sink deeper into the sand, and water pools above your feet. You look where the muddy river meets the land. A small black creature puckers its head above the water. The Nile softshell turtle looks at you until he understands that you are not a threat. He has come from a past of trials and misgivings throughout the Nile, where predators scour the land, but he has made it this far. He uses his three webbed claws to drag himself from the mud, carefully emerging from the warm Nile. 
His dark skin, pimpled with small white spots, covers his entire body, even his shell. As he pulls himself up further onto the bank, not far behind him, an even smaller turtle emerges. His daughter, young and docile, almost half his size. Her egg and her youth have survived the predators of the Nile. She too watches you carefully with a young yet inquisitive eye. And once she understands, just as her father had, that you mean no harm, she catches up with him. Her skin is leathery and damp, yet begins to dry in the heat. Into the grass they disappear, and as you look down, the sand in which you sink is almost up to your knees. Layers of mud and sand build up beneath you, as the Nile carries sediment across all of Egypt. As the sands of Egypt fall away, you find yourself at another edge of the Sahara. The southern edge, where another body of water appears in front of you, yet here you see no sign of desert, no endless dunes, no dried tufts of grass barely clinging to life. Here, the greenery of life takes you by surprise. Lake Chad sustains life unlike anywhere else in the Sahara. From a strong harbor of grass, trees, and animals, to the 30 million people who depend on its fresh water. What was once the largest freshwater lake on Earth some 6,000 years ago, estimated to be 390,000 square miles of surface area. Larger than the state of Texas, this lake had seen its heyday thousands of years ago. Vast and temperate, with the illusion of an ocean. Yet due to rapid changes in climate, the West African monsoon shifted. The axis of the earth tilted, and the winds which had once brought the rainfall that filled the lake changed its course, rendering the majority of the lake bed a giant ditch of sediment within a few millennia. What was once a massive haven of fresh water became rifts of dry desert sand and stone. Today, Lake Chad takes up a fraction of land compared to its former self. Only a fluctuating 100 or so square miles remain. Once larger than all of Texas, is now no bigger than Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yet despite the reduction in size, this lake still has much to offer. As you turn away from its shore and look behind you, the greenery lasts for miles curving trunks of trees above tall grass and budding flowers. Fertile land rolls happily where once was a lake. Of what you knew of the dry dunes of the Sahara, they remain somewhere beyond the horizon, beyond mud, and beyond rain clouds. With the lake's reduction and expansion year after year, it's changed between the delicate balance of the dry season and the rainy season. The shoreline constantly moves. 
The land ahead of you had once been underwater. So as the lake recedes, it leaves behind rich, fertile land, where plants and animals thrive, unlike the desolate land beyond the horizon. As you turn back towards the water, you begin your way along the shore. Each step sinks a bit into the sand. A gentle waves wash the beach, and you reach the half circle of a shallow bay where tree branches hang into the water's surface. The sun is high and hot, but their shade protects you, and the water at your feet cools you. A handful of fish swim through the water, their fins cut through the surface as they turn away from your intrusion, and you remind yourself to be still, be gentle with your surroundings. A quick blow of water comes from the center of the bay, where two whiskered nostrils peek from the camouflage of the water's reflection. The sun is too bright, and the water too murky at the center of the bay. Two tiny ears above a large head flick upwards towards the shore, and before you can breathe, a massive, hairless beast pulls itself up from the water. Its stubby legs carry its burly body towards the shore as it moves into the shallow waters of the bay. A lonely hippo declares this bay his home. His nostrils shoot a shower of water towards you. He is the third largest land mammal behind the rhino and the elephant, and his slow yet deliberate strides remind you of his incredible size and strength. This freshwater lake of Chad, aside from the Nile, is the most northern location this hippo travels beyond the savanna of the south. As a semi-aquatic animal, he needs an ample supply of water to survive. The majority of the Sahara, with all its dry, desolate domains, would be unkind to him, so he plays it safe and wades in the fresh water of Chad Lake where enough water and food are available to sustain his giant figure. Even the Nile hippopotamus who once roamed as north as the Mediterranean Sea have all perished. Unlike most semi-aquatic animals, these hippos are mostly hairless, and their skin is two inches thick. Their skin contributes to two layers of protection, Its thickness defends from predator attacks, and they also have the ability to secrete their own natural sunscreen-like substance through their pores. Initially clear, the substance will turn red and brown within minutes. This substance not only protects from UV light, but also cools the hippo and acts as an antibiotic. He reaches the lakeshore and heads into the tree line. His giant feet leave behind large pockets of mud behind him, and he disappears into the foliage in search of nice, juicy fruit. And as you stand on the shore watching him, you realize beneath the high, hot sun that you've forgotten your sunscreen. And unlike the hippo, you have no magic secretions to protect you. So you remain within the shade of the tree 
as its low-hanging branch tickles the surface of the water before you. Again, you teleport to another edge of the Sahara, just a bit outside the western edge, close to the sea, yet too far to see it. Somewhere within the Guinea Highlands, another river curves before you. Much clearer and brighter than the Nile, for it has one-tenth the sediment. A dense forest conceals where the river has come from and where it is going, but you feel that its journey is long and winding and endless. You feel this especially since its water flows away from the direction of the ocean. For an exit so close to the west, this river has decided to venture towards the sand of the Sahara rather than the sea. The Niger River and its long journey away from the sea make this the third longest river in Africa. From its western birthing grounds, through the Sahara and its escape into the Gulf of Guinea. The Niger River takes an incredibly complex path. Its shape is equally as complex as it travels in a large boomerang shape where its center bends curves near Timbuktu. After many years of confusion, scientists have begun to understand its strange shape and excessive journey. The Niger River is, in fact, two ancient rivers that merged into one. Over the years of desertification, when the savanna changed into the Sahara, as water became scarce, the last vestiges of rivers teamed up and combined in a way to preserve themselves. So no, it wasn't the river's first choice to take this convoluted journey to the Guinea Basin but rather it's the only option when the desert took over and its iconic bend near Timbuktu become an important hub for the trans-Saharan trade route where its waters supported the life and economy of the surrounding areas within an otherwise desolate desert. Where once were boundless grass plains, verdant forests, and a plethora of land animals, where once were means to eat, drink, and sleep without depending on the presence of a rain cloud. Here, the desertification permanently changed northern Africa, for better or worse. Although life may be harder, although survival might be slim, the deserts of the Sahara exist as a testament to the resilience of its plants and animals, of birds who travel hundreds of thousands of miles seeking sources of water smaller than a pool among an endless desert of dunes, of sleepy crocodiles who survived extinction events and later became gods of Egypt, of hippos who dare tread north towards the dry lands, which would surely kill them. This slight tilt of the Earth's axis may be seen as a merciless planet, or perhaps be a way of showing us how life goes on, 
how plants and animals survive within a changing ecosystem. The African Sahara, whose rivers and lakes have dried, has opened its unending basins of sand and sediment where no life can live. Yet all it takes is a mere surface wind to begin the journey of grain across the ocean to the heart of the Amazon, where its once useless nutrients now provide for a budding Kumaro tree. Well, that concludes our journey to the Sahara Desert. I hope you found some peace and rest along the way. If you enjoyed this episode of Planet Sleep, I would love it if you left us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the show and following us on Spotify and subscribed on YouTube. But that is the end of the journey for tonight. I hope you'll join me on our next journey to Planet Sleep. But until then, sleep easy, my friends. <laughs>